0: Uh, what you have here is believe it or not, uh, not the whole thing. Uh, you, maybe you picked that up uh, yesterday, a couple of people asked me questions and I said, well there 's a whole section of the paper on that and then I realized oh that 's what i didn 't give you like on the on the lawmaking supposed lawmaking power of the uh, executive um, I also I noticed when reading it uh, <laughs> Uh, that I didn't send the footnotes. This is extreme this has is extremely heavily footnoted. I must have <laughs> uh, I, I must have decided that uh, uh, that I, I could fool people into thinking it was a shorter paper if I just left off the footnotes. but uh, but please don't just assume that I was making all those quotes up. They're really there. Uh, so the the idea of the paper is <clears throat> to try to understand article two. Uh, As a text, uh, using its drafting history and the uh, background uh, experience with the royal executive power to understand what it's all about, and the uh, the first uh, section of the paper is a detailed drafting history, which I think includes everything. Uh, If if some of you comment and have a comment and tell me, no, you left out. Uh, some little episode, please do, because I'd like to have the whole thing there. Uh, there have been some pretty good drafting histories in the past, but I don't think there's ever been one that uh, that uh, that includes everything. And in particular, uh, the emphasis that the paper gives to the fact that the executive was really created uh, not on the floor of the Constitutional convention, but behind closed doors uh, in three committees, and especially the Committee of detail, uh, I think is is important and it, and makes this account different from most of the standard accounts in the histories of the formation of the Constitution. Uh, this my my essential conclusion from this was that uh, there was a there was a debate about executive power at the very beginning of the constitu- of the convention on m- mostly June 1st uh, that the uh, Virginia Plan resolution seven granted the executive powers that had been vested in Congress under the Articles of Confederation uh, to the president. Uh, among the, since there was no executive branch under the Articles, that meant that. That we were talking about all powers of an executive nature, including the full panoply of prerogative powers of the king. Uh, this was uh, immediately causes uh, Charles Pinckney to gasp and say, "But this is making this. This means he's an elective monarch if he has all the prerogative powers of the of the king." Uh, and at, at the end. Some of the leading delegates who are sort of the protagonists of my story, Wilson and Rutledge in particular, have a fairly sophisticated notion in which they do want a powerful executive and a unitary executive, but they say, uh, not all the prerogative powers of the king. He doesn't, they don't want to exclude them all. They don't want to include them all. They believe that they should make a considered judgment as to which ones are going to be vested and which ones aren't. That does not carry the day uh, in June, uh, and uh, but uh, much later in the, uh, in the convention when Rutledge chairs and Wilson as a member of the Committee of Detail, lo and behold, that's exactly what they do. And so <clears throat> if you take a, if you go down, uh, uh, if you look, get out your black, your handy uh, pocket copy of Blackstone, get yourself a list of the prerogative powers of the king, and and that includes both the prerogative powers that had been claimed and either rejected or taken away from the uh, Stuart kings in the 17th century, and also the prerogative powers that remained vested in uh, the crown uh, under George III. So I refer to both. If you take that list, you find, with one possible exception, every single one of them is explicitly addressed uh, by the convention, um, including in Article one Section 8, where uh, by one count, Uh, Fourteen of the twenty-five powers vested in Congress were actually prerogative powers of the king under the British uh, uh, system, Uh, and then, and and so the second part of the paper is to use what I basically to replicate what I think would have been their method and going through prerogative power after prerogative power talking about what it is what its history was with the british what its implications are for uh, the structure of government and then as best we can tell what the convention uh, decided to do with it uh and then uh section three of the paper is looking at the uh, organization of article two itself with this uh focus on on prerogative powers in mind. What matters for something being a prerogative is not its label. What matters for prerogative is what kind of power it is. And I suggest that we see five different kinds of power, but I'm gonna focus, you can boil those down to three important categories. One kind of power is a power which is constitutionally vested in the executive, does not require congressional authorization, Uh, in order to be uh, carried out, and is not subject to congressional regulation or diminution. Examples being things like the pardon power uh, or the veto power, where the uh, president doesn't have to ask permission to do that, and Congress has no authority to diminish uh, those powers. Those are pure uh, prerogative powers. Second, then there's this category also of pure prerogative powers that are qualified by. uh, advice and consent, or congressional override. That would be appointments, treaties, and veto power. Um, then, uh, but uh, that's kind of a subset. Then, uh, then there's another class of cases where uh, the president cannot act without uh, Congress's authorization. Uh, that would include such important things as taxing, spending, borrowing, and going to war. Uh, but when Congress does act, the president can act, but, but congressional silence does not uh, amount to authorization. And then the third category uh, is, I think, the most complicated, and it doesn't happen all that, it's also not that common, but I think it's conceptually quite important. And those are powers where the president uh, can act without advance authorization but where Congress can, using its enumerated powers, override uh, the, the the president's authority, uh, and I suggest, for reasons too lengthy to say in my 10 minutes, however long that is this morning, um, I say that the that the main source of that category of powers is the vesting clause of uh, the first sentence of of, of Article Two. I think most of the commentaries on the on the vesting clause have tended to assume that if the vesting clause is substantive in nature, that is if it actually imparts power to the president rather than just being a kind of naming clause saying that the, that whatever powers there are, are are vested in somebody called the, the president. if. Uh, there are any substantive powers, they have tended to assume that they are prerogative in nature, that is to say that they cannot be divested by Congress. They are constitutionally vested in the president in the same way that the pardon power is. I think that that is not correct. Uh, that I think that the best reading of the vesting clause is that all of the powers, all of those sort of residual unenumerated executive powers are subject to the limitations elsewhere in the document and that that includes article 1 section 8 so that when Congress is acting within the scope of its uh, enumerated powers uh, that it can displace uh, presidential powers that are uh, merely under the vesting clause in a way that they cannot do for pure prerogatives um, the Rest of the paper, which you all don't have, is going to be applying this, uh, this uh, taxonomy to a number of separation of powers uh, questions, uh, of which Zivotosky is the m- most recent uh, that I'll be addressing. And Zivotosky, I think, uh, may very well be in a, a good example of that last. I say may very well be, because I actually think Justice Scalia is correct that Zivotosky does not actually raise the problem of recognition, that that's, that the majority is simply, um, I don't know, exaggerating or mistaking what it means to put the word Israel on passports. Putting that aside and granting the majority its assumption that the case is about other uh, recognition power, uh, I argue that, uh, that Congress has the right to override uh, the president's determination in that uh, uh, in that area. So that would be uh, an example of that.